the very nature of Hong Kong, being a free, open society, um, has been devastated. The thing that surprises me and shocks me, perhaps, is that that the Sino-British Declaration was an international treaty between two countries, and it was ratified at the UN, which means all the other countries voted saying this is a good treaty, we approve of it. Imagine then if somebody turned around and said, well, we're not doing that anymore. It, it causes problems and outrage, and yet in Hong Kong, we've heard nothing. The shocking thing is we've heard nothing from 50% of the party to that agreement, which is the United Kingdom. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Mark Sabah, director of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation, an expert on international affairs. Mark talks to us about the dangerous rise of totalitarian regimes. We will eventually subjugate what we think is right to please the might of the authoritarian states. And that's great for authoritarian states, but it's terrible in the long term for any liberal country. It's almost like entering a new dark ages. And why we should all be worried about China invading Taiwan. If we think that things are bad with the war between Russia and Ukraine, wait till you see Taiwan, where they make all the world's microchips and semiconductors and all of that. If people's phones stop working, or their cars, or their televisions, or their microwaves, or whatever else needs a semiconductor, which is everything, wait till factories of semiconductors get seized or bombed or, or whatever it is, um, you'll bring entire countries to heel in, in a matter of days. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Mark Sabah, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much for having me. It's been 26 years since the handover of uh, Hong Kong to the Chinese Communist Party. How have things gone so far? Well, I suspect they started very well. There was a huge uh, groundswell of enthusiasm, uh, which peaked around the mid-2000s in terms of openness, freedom for business and trade and, and uh, social attitudes and so on. And things started changing when Xi Jinping became uh, the, the leader of China in uh, 2012-2013. Um, and he was of a very different mindset to Hu Jintao that preceded him. Mm. Uh, he very much brought in policies at home and abroad, which saw a rise in strength, military strength, uh, the strength of the police, the strength of the state, uh, crackdowns on civil society, crackdowns on protests and, and, and so on, things which had been loosened a little bit during the era of Hu Jintao. Um, on the foreign sphere, the building up of islands in the South China Seas, the Belt and Road Initiative, which a lot of people, including myself, thought, oh, well, it's just some projects in Africa. And Central Asia, but it's it's turned out to be a lot more dangerous, more sinister than that. Um, the uh, the more aggressive nature of their version of diplomacy, um, which has taken you know to, to extremes of threats to for, uh, to leaders in other countries, uh, expressed most clearly in the beating of Bob Chan in Manchester last year, uh, where diplomats took part in the beating. They didn't send out their bodyguards or their goons. They physically participated. And when the uh, Consul General of Manchester was asked on television about it, he said, I did it, it was my national duty, I had to do it. Um, therefore, not denying, uh, not explaining, just saying, I'm, you know, that's fine. Now, mm. there are very few other countries in the world that could probably get away. I mean, I wonder what would have happened if the German ambassador or the French ambassador had, you know, beaten up someone in the streets of, of, of London or Manchester, whether or not we'd still be discussing whether they should or should not be declared persona non grata or whether they should be expelled. It would have been immediate. 
And yet with China, some reason, there is this, this uh, idea that if we just understand a little bit more, a bit more leniency, a bit more courtesy, then maybe they'll come around to, you know, to behaving the right way. And of course, that's completely false. The only way you deal with a bully is by standing up to them. And we should have learned that lesson from Russia. You know, with Russia under Putin, we've had 20-odd years of wars and conflicts. Um, you know, you can go back to him bombing blocks of flats in Moscow to justify war in Chechnya. You had the invasion of Georgia. You had the annexation of Crimea and East Ukraine in 2014. You had the shooting down of MH17. You had the gas in Syria. And at each occasion, nobody did anything. Mm. You know, poisonings in London, in England, I should say. People came here to poison people in England. We know who they are. Russia doesn't send them back for trial or punish them. In fact, it elevated the two men from the Salisbury poisoning to the parliament. We had the, the young girl who was working for an MP in parliament. She was elevated to the Russian Duma also to avoid immunity or prosecution. It, you know, you're, it, it's a way of rewarding people and sticking up, a, a poking in the eye those who accuse you. And increasingly, we're seeing that with China. We appear not to have learned our lessons from, from Russia. It seems like a lot of promises have been broken. How do you see the future going for Hong Kong and what can we do to make it better? Well, the, the biggest promise that was broken was the Sino-British Declaration, which was ratified by the UN in 1985. Uh, so, you know, just before the handover, it was signed in 87 with, the, with Thatcher, then there was the handover in 97, and that gave Hong Kong 50 years of autonomy, this, the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, one country, two systems. Um, with the introduction of the national security law three years ago, that was the end of that one country, two systems. Mm -hmm. uh, journalists were arrested, media was shut down, protest was, was stifled. Hong Kong was the only place in, uh, in the China sphere where people could remember Tiananmen Square. Officially, Tiananmen Square in China doesn't exist. You can't find it, it doesn't, there's no commemorations, it never happened. So the only place where uh, you could commemorate that was in Hong Kong, and that was stopped about two years ago. In fact, Jimmy Lai, one of the things he was arrested for was for holding a single ca candle in Victoria Park in Hong Kong. He wasn't with a crowd, he was by himself, or a few people, um, holding a candle to remember the victims of, of Tiananmen Square, and that was enough to get him arrested and charged. So the very nature of Hong Kong, being a free, open society, um, has been devastated. The thing that surprises me and shocks me, perhaps, is that, that the Sino-British Declaration was an international treaty between two countries, and it was ratified at the UN, which means all the other countries voted saying, this is a good treaty, we approve of it. Um, it similar to when a country declares independence. Often it's ratified at the, at the UN, and they put their stamp of approval, and other countries acknowledge that we now recognize that country. Imagine then if somebody turned around and said, well, we're, we're not doing that anymore. It, it causes problems and outrage, and yet in Hong Kong, we've heard nothing. The shocking thing is we've heard nothing from 50% of the party to that agreement, which is the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, they're holding Jimmy Lai in prison. He's a British citizen. Uh, we hear very little about getting him released, or we hear a standard line saying, we raise it whenever we have a meeting. Well, raising never achieved anything. What are you actually doing to get him out? Um, and it's fear. And it's uh, fear of losing trade and commerce and fear of, fear of losing money and income and students and, and donations. And very often those in themselves are dangerous donations. So it was reported recently that Huawei has donated 30 million pounds to British universities. Mm. Um, 
that's an astonishing amount of money by any stretch of the imagination. So Huawei um, being a, a tech company. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and a tech company that was banned from, from getting involved in the UK's network because of security concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just that. We found dozens of Chinese state uh, companies investing in British universities. Uh, Confucius Institutes, uh, a report that was done last year by, uh, uh, by a think tank at which we participated uh, in that report, showed that out of the 30-odd uh, Confucius Institutes that we investigated, only four stick to the remit of language uh, training. All the others are involved in commercial activities and influence, right. um, which is atrocious. And, uh, you know, when Rishi Sunak was running to be prime minister against Liz Truss, he was a really tough guy and he said, I'm going to shut them all down. Nothing's happened. In fact, we've got James Cleverly giving continuously confusing statements about the UK's relationship with China. We're going to be tough, but we want to be friends. We're going to talk tough, but we're going to have trade. We're going to not tell them what to do, but we're going to raise these issues. Well, eventually, confusion is good for the oppressor. It's not good for the person trying to take a stand. Um, you know, the CCP, the, the, uh, the hierarchy of the Chinese authorities love all of this confusion. You mentioned Jimmy Lai. So he's a um, Hong Kong media tycoon, also a British citizen. What does his case mean to Hong Kong? I mean, it's emblematic for, for almost everyone. Um, Jimmy Lai was a, a, a man who came to Hong Kong as a boy, a 12-year-old boy. Uh, he was from the mainland. He, he, he came in on a, on a boat, uh, and he worked his way from being a pot cleaner to one of Hong Kong's richest men. Um, he worked hard. He set up a network of... He worked in the clothing industry. Then he built his own clothing empire. Then he sold it, and he set up a newspaper called the Apple Daily, which was by far and away the most popular uh, tabloid newspaper in, in Hong Kong. Uh, at the time that it was shut, it had 600,000 online subscribers in a city of 8 million people. Um, those are numbers that any newspaper here would dream of. Um, and yet it was shut. It was, uh, people were arrested. Jimmy Lai was arrested. And so This is after the national security law. Exactly. And so, you know, filming him being marched out of the office in handcuffs, arresting six or seven of his executives, putting them on trial for things like treason and sedition and, and all sorts of nonsense and for publishing a newspaper and a newspaper that was critical of Beijing and a newspaper which did remember Tiananmen Square and a newspaper which did speak out against oppression by the CCP around the world and they were told shut and he said no. There were other media outlets who are still open because they have taken a new editorial line. That's their right. They've got to do what they want to do. Um, but you have a multi-million pound company, a hundred, hundred and fifty million pound uh, uh, company that's been destroyed, hundreds of people out of work, um, many of whom have had to leave Hong Kong for fear for themselves. Um, and so it's emblematic because A, he was self-made, mm. B, it was a pro-democracy newspaper, uh, and C, if one of the richest, most well-known men in Hong Kong cannot protect himself from the Hong Kong authorities, um, where he must have known a lot of the people who were there, you know, he would have known all the leaders, you know, yeah. just as in any country, the richest people tend to have close contacts. It, it's not a negative thing. It just it, by virtue of the fact that you move in similar circles, um, they will know who he is and he would know who they are. And yet they're happy to see him sit in prison because now Hong Kong is no, no longer one country, two systems. It's one country, one system. Um, and it's desperately scrambling to keep its reputation going by launching that multi-million pound Hello Hong Kong campaign. And on the day that they launched it, they put 47 
people on trial, uh, democracy uh, protesters on trial, on the very the day after they launched a Hello Hong Kong, We Are Open campaign. I mean, it's just uh, the city is being devastated by its own. Um, and the leaders of Hong Kong authorities have taken the decision that they will uh, happily see the city uh, crushed or brought under the heel of the Chinese Communist Party um, for their own purposes. I, I think it's astonishingly short-sighted and it's very sad for Hong Kong. Um, but Jimmy Lai has become such an emblem there that he's a real thorn in their side and I, I, I bet they wish he wasn't. Mm. And so the, the, most, the, the most important thing that people can do is keep saying his name, keep him in the public sphere, keep writing about him and talking about him. Um, a, as a prisoner, nobody wants to be forgotten. In fact, yeah. when you read the diaries of, of people who've been in prison in the gulags, whatever, the thing that they fear the most is being forgotten. No one knows who I am, where I am. But the other thing is by keeping the name public, you keep reminding those authorities that we haven't forgotten, we know what you've done, and that becomes an embarrassment for them. And so when the British government says we've raised it, how do we know? And in what context did you raise it? You just ticked a box saying, oh, by the way, Jimmy Lai, can you, um, you know, let's tick box with each other. But has anyone actually stood up at a press conference and said, we've called on the authorities to release him? We're not seeing that. And we have to remember, he's a British citizen. Um, so the yeah. all-party parliamentary group on Hong Kong released a paper, didn't they, saying yeah. it should be a political priority? Of course. Uh, of course. Is it? I, I, I don't think it is. I mean, for the king's coronation... China's number two came, and he was the person who oversaw the strategy to crush Hong Kong. Mm. Um, now, some people think that's deeply disrespectful to Britain. Um, I just think it's China saying we don't care. It could be that it was a calculated move to pick the precise person uh, to show the British we can do what we want and you're going to do nothing about it. Look, even the person that's you know, destroyed the Sino-British agreement is going to be at your coronation you know, we ha they have that little respect for us that that might be the case. Um, but I, I just view it that Britain has a, an agreement with that country, as we do with other countries. And if one of the parties runs rough, roughshod over it and destroys businesses and removes journalists and arrests citizens, why are we inviting them to the coronation? Mm. And, and, and yesterday, one of the business and trade ministers, Johnson, is in Hong Kong posting a picture saying we're looking forward to investing more. I mean, the, the lack of care for Britain from this particular group of, um, uh, this particular part, uh, government, is, is quite shocking and frightening. And I think that any British business that's going to China and to Hong Kong should be warned by the government. We may not be able to help you or protect you. Rather than giving this facade of normalcy about what's happening, you can't have a financial centre that doesn't have a free press. People need to read the papers and see what's going on in the world of business, what's going on in the world of politics. We can invest here, we can't invest there, there's an election. Stocks and shares rise and fall on what's going on in the world of politics. Um, if people aren't getting the correct news or they're getting a sanitised view, then how do you know that your projects, your investments, your business is safe? Where are you getting your information from? Um, that's quite worrying. On this subject of press freedom, uh, NTD's sister media Epoch Times had his Hong Kong building attacked twice. Once was an arson attack, and the second time, these uh, masked figures with uh, sledgehammers came to smash up the equipment. Mm -hmm. So, media freedom in Hong Kong is 
quite dear to our hearts. Yeah. How, how bad has it got in Hong Kong with the media freedom? Well, I mean, in media freedom, according to, I think it was the, was it Reporters Without Borders? It dropped from 40th in the world to 140th in the world in the space of, I think it was 18 months. Um, it, it was the biggest drop ever. Mm. It was astonishing. I mean, out of 180 countries, Hong Kong drops from 40 to 140 or something like that, 38 to 140. Um, it's a complete collapse of media freedom. And if uh, journalists can't do their job freely, then um, that has a knock-on impact to the whole of society because you, you don't know what you're reading anymore. You don't know if what you're reading is state-sponsored propaganda or is it actually what's going on with that business or that government official or, or you know, that incident? How do you know that the, the news that you are reading is a true version? How do you know it's not sanitized? How do you know that only a particular story you're being allowed to, it could be anything, a murder, a, 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 you know, an economic crime, whatever it is, how do you know you're getting the full details? Um, and journalists being arrested is the first sign that there is something very badly wrong in society and that the leadership is rotten. And that would be the same in South America, Africa, Asia. Think of any regime you like. When, a, when, a, when there is a coup or a dictator or anything like that, the first thing they do is they hit universities and newspapers mm. every time through history. Oh. It's always the same. And yet we're seeing it in real time in Hong Kong. And I think the only difference is Hong Kong is a bright, shining city with tall buildings of chrome and glass, and it's got a vibrant social life. And because you haven't seen guns, tanks, military on the streets and so on, we tend to think, oh, it's not so bad. It can't be that bad. Whereas if it's in Sudan or Venezuela, you immediately go, oh my God, it's terrible. It's the same thing going on. It's just a slightly different way of doing it. Jimmy Lai is not the only uh, British citizen who is suffering at the hands of authoritarian regimes. For example, Vladimir Karamursa got 25 years recently. It feels like these things maybe wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Are we, are we moving towards an age where the authoritarian regimes are, are getting a bit more powerful and confident? I would say so. I think that we have never been at a worse time in about 100 years with the, the rise of authoritarian states. The build-up to the First and Second World War was the, the last time we saw dictatorships and, and monarchies and, and authoritarian states, what we would call authoritarian states today, um, rising, clubbing together and trying to crush others. And it led to 40 years of, of devastation be before we had relative quiet on the world stage, relative quiet. Um, but at the moment, the, the world's authoritarian countries are on the rise. And they're on the rise because the West has become complacent. Um, if you think about the United Nations, instead of being a convening place for France, England, Germany, America, Canada, the people who take it the most seriously now are authoritarian countries. They sit on every committee, they pack every forum, they vote in blocks. And so you end up with these ludicrous situations where at the United Nations Human Rights Committee, you have Saudi Arabia on the Women's Rights Committee and Iran on the uh, Gay Rights Committee and so on and on. It's, it's ludicrous. So they look like playing the system. Correct. They're, right. they're using the system that was built to encourage dialogue between countries, but it's only being used properly ironically, by authoritarian states. Mm. Um, and they've also found ways of work, and that's where they share information. It's where they share how do you get away with things, what tactics you're using, what military weapons you're using, what technology you're using, which banks you're using, which uh, offshore accounts you use, who are your lawyers, who are your PR agencies. That's where they get together and they, they, they meet and they collude. Um, and it's at the detriment of, 
liberal countries, uh, democratic countries, which are then crushed. Now, we in the West, uh, West uh, Europe, for example, America, Canada, Australia, for a long time, we just pretended that it wasn't happening. But now it's becoming so obvious. Um, and of course, we have China and Russia on the Security Council. So mm -hmm. essentially, that's a dead uh, dead tool now. I mean, you're never going to get anything out there. No one's going to support anyone. The United Nations Human Rights Committee is basically a laughing stock. There's no one who takes that seriously anymore. But officially, all of its votes are counted and ratified, and out goes the statement. And then it's a piece of paper that's legally put out, and, and Russia or China or Azerbaijan or Turkey or Venezuela or whoever it is can hold it and say, look, the UN ratified. There is nothing wrong with what's going on in my country. Um, and that's on the rise. Uh, the, the numbers of democratic states is on the decline, uh, and the number of authoritarian countries or countries which are considered not free is on the rise. So do you think we're, we're entering the, the age of the authoritarian superpower? Can we expect to see authoritarian powers right at the top of the tree? I think if we continue on the current trajectory, then the answer has to be yes. Right. And, and we're seeing a shift now in that China has a policy of non-interference. And one of the reasons why the Belt and Road Initiative was theoretically a big success in Africa was they'd go to countries that needed money and they would give them all the money they want. They'd build stadiums, motorways, buildings, schools, universities, palaces, whatever it was that was agreed. And then they would hold them in debt for the next 100, 150 years. And those countries are basically bought, uh, their votes are bought at the UN, other, other than international institutions. And so China can then say, we got 70 votes at the UN. Well, you got them because you have, uh, you know, huge leverage over all these countries. You know, why, why is the Pacific Island diplomacy is so contentious. Solomon Islands and all these places. It's, it's a real battleground because there are 30, 40 countries, all little islands. The UN is one member, one vote. So if you can control those 30 or 40 islands as a block, that's 30 or 40 more votes that you have at the UN or at other international institutions. Um, if you can control 30 countries in Africa because they owe you, that's already 60 votes you have at the UN out of 180 countries. Uh, and so on and on. So the, the diplomacy aspect is, is, is important in this, but it's being subverted. It's for the wrong reasons. You know, if you think that America withdrew embassies and ambassadors from many, many countries after 9-11, we did too. After the 2008 um, economic crash, I think we withdrew from about 40 or 50 countries and we sort of partnered up with other neighboring countries and so on. Whilst we were doing that, China and Russia were sending in new embassies. Right. And so unsurprisingly, if you look now at all the votes in the UN about Russia and Ukraine, Africa almost entirely votes with Russia. It's partly because for the last 10, 15 years, Russia has been on the ground cultivating the relationship, whereas we haven't. Um, there is also the subcontext about colonialism and, you know, you're sticking it to the Westerners and so on and on. Um, but there is no question that the proliferation of embassies in smaller countries has had a huge impact. And now America is reopening a lot of the embassies in the South Pacific that it shut 20 years ago, but potentially it's too late. Mm. So we're seeing possibly the end of the, the dollar as a reserve currency is certainly being talked about. Yeah. Um, what would life, I'm asking you to kind of get your crystal ball out, you know a lot about international affairs. What would life be like if these kind of uh, authoritarian powers were the, the leaders of the world? I mean, well, 
eventually, and it's already starting, eventually Western liberal countries, Western democracies, um, would need to subjugate their own moral and intellectual and social compasses to maintain trade and relations with those countries. Mm. So if China continues its growth the way it's going, its leverage over multiple countries the way it's going, we're already seeing with the UK in relation to Hong Kong, let's not mention that. Let's just park that. It's not so important. It's not worth disrupting all of what may come. We saw it with Russia a little bit. You know, we were extremely keen on Russian money. You know, Russian oligarchs were buying our football clubs, hotels, restaurants, investing in our galleries and museums and so on. And the British government was delighted, as was the French and, and other countries, delighted to take the money and, and keep quiet about a few other things. It's not so important. It's not our fight. Let them, it's internal. We can't speak about that. You know, they'll accuse us of being colonialists and all of that. Um, and we're seeing the same with China. We will eventually subjugate what we think is right to please the might of the authoritarian states. And that's great for authoritarian states, but it's terrible in the long term for any liberal country. It's almost like entering a new dark ages. Mm. You know, if you, if you think about the dark ages, it was all about violence, anti-intellectualism, the rise of religion, uh, the rise of the cult of, of individuals. And it took hundreds of years before we had the enlightenment, when people started talking about ideas again. You know, when you wouldn't get burnt at the stake for suggesting the earth is, revolves around the sun. Um, and I think we're entering a period of a new dark age, and we're right at the start. And we still have a chance to put the handbrake on. We still have a chance to say no. But you need world leaders and political leaders who view themselves as genuine grand statesmen and not short-term uh, win people. Mm. And unfortunately, the nature of Western politics at the moment is astonishingly short-natured. Everyone's worried about the next election cycle, and that's it. You know, we don't have 10-year plans. China does. Mm. Um, and so they can put something in place and see it through. Whereas today in the United Kingdom, you could put a policy in place, and then two years later you lose your seat, and the next person reverses and says, we're not doing that. And so it's very hard for us to have that long-term vision um, unless we ourselves uh, are governed in such a way that there isn't all this continuous election cycle um, which obviously I assume most people don't want to see that. Um, but yes, the, the rise of the strong man, the rise of the authoritarians, is, is, it's an onward march, it's an onward beat in the background. We have a chance to change it, but we really need leaders who are willing to stand up and, and face those challenges and not just kowtow for business and trade and, and economy. Um, Rishi Sunak, when he was campaigning to be leader of the Conservative Party, talked quite a tough talk on China. And now, as you mentioned, the Foreign Secretary is uh, talking about engaging with the CCP. Sir Ian Duncan Smith said China sees us as a soft touch. Yeah. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Rishi Sunak is not tough on China. Uh, in fact, during the campaign when he was running against Liz Truss to be leader of the Conservative Party, on the week of the vote or two weeks before the vote, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was asked by someone in Congress about China's man, Rishi Sunak. They viewed him as China's man. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason is not that he's ideologically pro-China, but that he's so pro-business, money, finance, and trade that he's willing to forego and look past any other issues that he probably should have been raising. 
ironically, Liz Truss was one of the toughest leaders when it came to dealing with authoritarians. Mm. She had that absolutely right. She may have had other things wrong, but on, on spotting the challenges of authoritarian states, she was absolutely right. I, I didn't believe it at the time. I don't believe it now. Rishi is not tough on China. It's, it's just, um, he's given up everything that he said to when he was running to be leader in, in relation to, to China. Um, if you're not standing up for your own contract to do with Hong Kong, why on earth would we stand up for any other issue in, in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs or mm -hmm. Tibet or, or anything else? And when there is a war uh, between China and Taiwan, not if, but when, and I suspect it's coming sooner than we think, who are we going to be on the world stage that we'll be able to say, please stop? We're going to have no voice. We're going to have no say. We're going to be so over leveraged with China. They're going to have so many of our assets, so much of their money here, that they'll simply say, keep quiet or we'll pull out. And no leader is going to want to see the complete collapse of our economy because Chinese money leaves the United Kingdom. We've talked quite a bit about China. But I know you're also an expert on Russia. Uh, can you talk to us a bit about the situation in Ukraine? I mean, where do you see this going? I mean, it's a mess for Russia. It's a mess for Putin. And he's got so many countries watching him depending on his success. There's lots of authoritarian states who rely on Russia for their money, their, their, their strategy, their tactics, their support in, in international fora, treaties, embassies, and so on and on. Um, if Putin were to win in Ukraine, we would see a, a very uh, strong rise of belligerent authoritarian nations right. in the third world, uh, global south, South America, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Middle East, we would see an absolute belligerence from those countries because they would feel emboldened that they can invade neighbors, they can crack down on minorities, they can take territories that were once theirs 100 years ago, 500 years ago, and claim it as theirs. And I, I think it would be a very dangerous uh, world if Putin were to win. Um, so I don't think it's an exaggeration when people say the battle in Ukraine is a battle for the West, Western liberal values. It really is. Um, not because Ukraine itself was this shining light of virtue. Of mm. course it wasn't. Um, but the idea that Russia should invade it because it didn't consider it a country. China doesn't consider Taiwan a country. Right. Russia for years was saying Ukraine is not a country. They annexed East Ukraine. They annexed Crimea. The world did nothing. Um, it took a full-scale invasion. And even until the minute they rolled in, there were still people saying they're not going to do it. And there was people like me going, there's 160,000 troops on the border. That's not an exercise. They're amassing an invasion. And people, there were still people going, no, 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 he's just, he's just, it's just bluster. But then in the First World War, there were people holding up pieces of white paper saying Hitler would, uh, Second World War, Hitler would never do it. Mm. Um, that's, that's always going to be the case. Um, but the war has been a disaster for Russia, uh, a disaster. It's been so gutted by corruption so completely hollowed out by theft that the army is, is a disaster. Um, they're barely hiding the fact that they're using mercenaries like the Wagner Group. Mm. You know, the other day, the head of the Wagner Group, Prigozhin, said, give us more weapons or we'll stop fighting for you publicly. And of course, Putin said, we'll give you the weapons. I mean, it, it, it's not, they're not even hiding it anymore. Um, and, and it's a disaster for them. And I think there are questions being asked inside Russia now because 
maybe in Moscow, people have access to CNN or the BBC or something like that. But yeah. the, Russia is split into Russia and Moscow and St. Petersburg. And those two are very different to the rest of the country. But the bodies generally don't come from people from Moscow. The soldiers come from everywhere else in the mm-hmm. countryside. And those bodies are starting to show up. And those mothers are starting to ask questions. Um, what's happening? Why are, why are dozens of bodies showing up? What's happened to our military? You know, we're being sold the story that we have this great power. Well, what's happening? Um, so I think it's right that the West support Ukraine militarily as well as morally and, and, and so on and on. And I think we should help with the uh, reconstruction, recovery, redevelopment of the country when, when the war ends, hopefully very soon. Um, but Russia has just dealt body blow beyond body blow to itself. And I think that where you will see the difference is when this war ends, you will see which countries come to its defense. And it'll be those countries that it has invested in over the last 10 or 15 years in Africa and South America uh, and so on, because they'll be forced to pick a side and their side will be with the person who funded them. If we were to see a China invasion of Taiwan now, it feels like we're almost to the kind of World War Three with the two sides with all the authoritarian countries and all the support they've drummed up over here, as America and, and all the kind of free countries on this side. It's, it's quite a scary position to be yeah, in. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's very frightening. Um, but I think the more we back away from soft conflicts like standing up over Hong Kong or Ukraine, the more likely we are to see a hot conflict in Taiwan. Right. The lesson from Russia with Putin is if you don't stand up to a bully early on, at some point they'll go too far and then it'll drag everyone in, just as Ukraine has. You know, we're all in a cost of living crisis. All of our fuel has gone up. All of our petrol has gone up. Um, Germany had a massive problem where 90% of their oil and gas came from Russia and they suddenly needed to scramble around to, to find more and use their reserves and so on. Uh, France started buying uh, oil and gas from Venezuela because they couldn't get it from, from Russia anymore. Again, anyone in the last 15 years who was watching Russia could have told you, start um, cutting your over-reliance on Russia. Just, just cut your over-reliance. Start finding alternative sources. And people didn't. Um, with Taiwan, if we think that things are bad with the war between Russia and Ukraine, wait till you see Taiwan where they make all the world's microchips and semiconductors and all of that. If people's phones stop working or their cars or their televisions or their microwaves or whatever else needs a semiconductor, which is everything, wait till factories of semiconductors get seized or bombed or, or whatever it is. Um, you'll bring entire countries to heel in, in a matter of days. Um, I think that'll be a lot worse, a lot worse. And, and, and China has shown that it's willing to go into a hot battle with Taiwan. It's flying airplanes over the island every day. It's, it's doing military exercises right up to the border in violation of all sorts of uh, international treaties. Uh, it doesn't care. It's almost daring us in the West. And yet, if we even send a leader to visit Taiwan, there are declarations and statements and outrage and how dare you and who do you think you are? Well, why are you telling us what we can do? You know, uh, why do you dictate what we can do and what we can't do? Um, we don't tell you what you do. Don't tell us what we can do. Um, And so I think that a war with Taiwan would be infinitely worse than what we're seeing with Ukraine in terms of the impact on all of our lives. Mark Simon, thank you for joining us on Precious Thought Leaders. Thank you very much.